0: Welcome to At The Bar, a spirited conversation about law, politics, and culture. I'm Jennifer Braceres from Independent Women's Law Center, and I am here with my intrepid colleagues, Inez Shultman and May Mailman. Hello, ladies. Hi. Um, So today we're talking about the intersection of
1: free speech and anti-discrimination law and how those two things play off against each other, specifically uh, the Supreme Court's recent ruling in 303 Creative versus Alanis. Um, This is a case brought by graphic designer Lori Smith, who, among other things, um, wanted to design wedding websites. um, And and the question presented to the court was whether Lori, who is a religious Christian and opposes gay marriage, um, would be required by Colorado anti-discrimination law to create a wedding website for a same-sex couple. Um, So although the media has done its job in describing this case as a clash between uh you know gay couples and religious christians and uh, this is actually about free speech this is about compelled speech and free speech and whether or not um somebody who is creating something creative and an individual has to um create on demand uh any kind of that kind of artistic product uh, for all comers for any view um sorry, not all comers, actually, I want to distinguish myself there. Um, not all comers, but any view, right? So this could apply just as easily to any number of cases. And I'm sure we'll, we'll get into that. But um, this is a key distinction between this case and another case that a lot of people think is very similar, right? Masterpiece Cake Shop. Um, Jennifer, why don't you explain why these two things legally are different, even though they seem like a very similar case, and they're coming out of the same state?
0: Yeah, I mean, there are some similarities, and in some sense, um, the court in, in 303 Creative uh, took up the case to sort of address some unfinished business from, from Masterpiece Cake Shop. But they are different cases um, in terms of the legal posture and in terms of the precedents they set. Um, both cases stem from Colorado anti-discrimination law, which, like the laws of many other states, um, prohibits discrimination in public accommodations on the basis of a variety of categories, race, sex, ethnicity, sexual orientation in this case. Um, So the idea is, you know, if you're a restaurant or a movie theater or a hotel, you can't refuse to serve patrons because you don't, you know, like patrons of that race. That's, you know, we long ago decided that that was a bad thing. Um, and we're not going to let people do that. Um, so the question here is whether a proprietor who makes something special, a wedding cake in the case of masterpiece cake shop, um, a website in the case of 303 creative um, has to not just serve all customers um, but but create, a message with their art that they disagree with. Um, so, so you know, the issue was similar in both cases, but what happened in Masterpiece Cake Shop was that um, the enforcement agency in Colorado, the, the Anti-Discrimination Commission or whatever they call it, that was reviewing um, Jack Phillips' case, the Baker's case, um, was so filled with animus towards religious Christians, and the record was replete with examples of how they were applying the law inconsistently um, to those who, who are religious and those who aren't. So what the Supreme Court held in that case was actually you, the state of Colorado, this particular agency, are the ones who are discriminating, and you're discriminating on the basis of religion in terms of how you um, apply this law. So, um, the, the court in Masterpiece cake Shop never addressed sort of the other two questions um, that were raised here in 303 creative, which were two things. One, um, does the proprietor have a religious liberty interest um, in being able to not make these these create these messages? Um, and two, do they have a, a free speech right? You know, two separate prongs of the First Amendment. Um, are they, you know, protected in terms of not having the government compel their speech? So the Supreme Court only granted cert on the second question, that, or I don't know what number it was, but they only granted cert on the question of whether or not um, the web designers. Um, rights of free expression were violated. They did not grant cert on the question of whether um, this violated her right to religious liberty. Um, although, of course, her you know religion is still very much a part of the case because her religion is why she doesn't want to create these messages. But the media has really gotten it wrong in terms of kind of portraying it as a religious liberty case. Oh, religious people have a right to discriminate against gays now. No, A, that's not true uh, about this case. It's not even what the case was addressing or considering. So um, it was, as you said in your introduction, purely about... Speech and and you could change the facts, you could reverse the parties actually, um, and the case still would have come out the same way.
1: Loath as I am to defend the media, I can understand uh, why they went this direction because the dissent uh, actually confuses some of these same issues, and um, which you would expect maybe a higher standard for Supreme Court justices. But nevertheless, um, may you know? Let's talk about the procedural posture of this, because part of the media narrative around this case has been that this is like a fake case, right? Um, Because she hadn't actually started her business or, uh, you know, that she was essentially asking the court preemptively to say, uh, no, the state of Colorado cannot prosecute me or fine me or, or assess all kinds of penalties on me. Um, if I decide to start designing these, these wedding websites, um, and I, I still do them in accordance with my deeply held beliefs. So w- what about the, like, how did this case come about and and why is it that, um, this case was actually able to get before a court, uh, even though th- there hadn't been, um, like that essentially there hadn't been the, the actual like prosecution from the state and, and in fact, it's not even clear, that she actually was fielding requests.
2: Yeah. So rarely does the term pre-enforcement challenge get millions of views on Twitter, but <laughs> in this case, it did um, because it's, be, you know, the media is freaking out. This is a fake case because as you're right. So Lori Smith is not even in the wedding website business yet. She has a desire to get into the wedding website business but she is afraid that if she does, uh, that she will have to do gay weddings because of Colorado's law. And so she has a intent to engage in a course of conduct, and she has a fear that she's going to get fined or otherwise be in trouble with the law. And Colorado agreed with her. Yes, if you uh, you engage in this conduct, if you do not provide same-sex wedding websites, then yes, the law would apply to you. So in that case, it is a very straightforward uh, basis for standing, for getting into court on a pre-enforcement challenge. Super, super common. Uh, All the drag queens that are suing right now, it's not that some drag queen has been hauled into jail. It's that there are adult establishments who say, I think that this law is going to apply to me. I think that my performance will somehow violate the law, because in my adult establishment, I bring in children, apparently. Um, And so they have brought these cases to challenge the law, even though maybe they don't yet perform for children and even though the law hasn't yet applied to them. So pre-enforcement challenges, super common abortion, basically, you know, every doctor that brings an abortion challenge. It's, I want to, you know, do this, but I don't want, you know, I I need some clarification on how the law is going to apply to me. Very, very common. And yet the freak out here is that there was um, a couple alleged in the case that maybe did ask for a website being a gay couple and it turns out maybe that was just a troll you know uh, it's not exactly sure maybe somebody put in their wrong address you know it was was after the case was already exactly so they filed the case exactly like I said pre-enforcement challenge the day afterward someone allegedly you know requested a website that was a gay couple you know that fact exists apparently this gay couple doesn't exist it's a straight couple Something like that but that's so besides the point of the case because it was a pre-enforcement challenge so whether a gay couple does exist doesn't exist did ask for something didn't ask for something it matters to the case zero and then I think the other sort of problem people have is okay maybe there was standing maybe she could have gotten in uh to to have a court review this case, but why did the Supreme Court take it? Why was it such a big deal that the Supreme Court should take it? And of course, you know, these are questions about should the Supreme Court wait for people to be in jail for their First Amendment freedoms? And that has really not not been uh, standard practice. So uh, there is a Um, let's see what year, 1974 case um, involving pamphlets and the Vietnam War and whether or not someone actually has to be hauled into court for spreading their beliefs. And the Supreme Court many, many decades ago said no. So there's longstanding precedent that, uh, yes, you can get into court. And yes, the Supreme Court is interested in these types of cases, even if no one's sitting in jail for their First Amendment freedoms.
1: Um, okay, well, let's, let's move a bit to the merits of this case. Actually, before we do that, um, there were a number of things that make this case interesting and and really limited in cabinet. And that's because the parties both stipulated to certain things um, when they came before the court. And so the, the, the specific grounds on which the Supreme Court was reviewing it were actually quite limited by what the parties themselves had stipulated um, maybe Jennifer, do you want to like, just kind of explain out um, what was stipulated
0: and why that matters. And and also maybe. Yeah. So, so how I said
1: somehow decided that didn't matter.
0: Yeah. So both, you know, <laughs> both the, the state of Colorado and Lori Smith agreed that yes, she would work with anyone gay or straight, black or white, you know, Jewish or Christian, she would work with anyone who came to her Um, But she doesn't create websites or didn't want to create websites with certain messages. So she said she wouldn't create a website that would promote atheism or promote casinos or gambling. Um, And in addition, she did not want to create websites um, that promoted gay marriage. And in her view, a couple's wedding website would be an endorsement of Gay marriage, generally, in that particular union, um, but so they—they they, both parties agreed that that was her position; that it was a sincerely held position, um, and you know, the state of Colorado didn't disagree with that. The state of Colorado also agreed that yes, if she refused to create a website for a gay couple, they would. Um, Come after her. They, they agreed that they would pursue a claim against her. Um, they also agreed, both parties, that there are lots of other web designers out there in Colorado and elsewhere um, that, that a gay couple can go to and that the services are readily available. Um, and they also agreed that website design is a form of speech. Um, these things were not disputed by the state. So it was really a, a pure legal question of whether the state's interest in stamping out discrimination outweighs um, the proprietor's right to free speech, because, you know, the the standard legal test is, does the state have what's called a compelling interest um, in in preserving this right such that you know it can it can curb somebody's constitutional rights so that was that was the only issue before the court not whether the website was speech not whether she would actually serve um, gay customers those things were all agreed upon
1: yeah um not really all, all agreed upon, but, um, you know, this this speech conduct distinction um, is something that the court has been trying to suss out for a long time. And May, I'm going to ask you about that in just one moment. Um, but the 10th Circuit, basically, as Jennifer just said, the, the, this case came up from the 10th Circuit, and the 10th Circuit basically said, yes, to all of those things, yes, to what the parties have stipulated, but they've met their burden of strict scrutiny right? Um, It's so important. It's so important um, that, that, uh, you know, we prevent discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation, um, that yes, we have met this very, very strict standard that cuts into protected speech under the First
0: Amendment. So, but, but um, making it as Let me jump in there and say that the part of the test um, as, as applied by the 10th Circuit, it's not just whether the state Uh, has a compelling interest in stopping this discrimination. It's also whether um, there are any ways that the state can do that, that are less restrictive on constitutional freedoms, right? So that's the test. And what the 10th circuit said is, um, yes, this right to be free of discrimination is so important that the government, you know, is compelled to act, but also there's nothing else they can do to enforce the right to be free of, of discrimination because these website services are so unique and they are by definition unavailable elsewhere. That's what the 10th Circuit held. So then it gets to the Supreme Court and here's where you have some serious disagreement.
1: Yeah, I really want to get to that question eventually because I think it's it's really interesting for a variety of reasons beyond this case about the mm-hmm. uniqueness of services, right? Um but before that, uh, just to give the background for folks who don't follow this kind of court doctrine, why is this speech conduct distinction? Why would it have been re- relevant? Being clear that it wasn't relevant in this case because the parties had both stipulated already that this was speech and they were asking the court to address very specific legal issues, saying, assuming, yes, this is speech and not conduct but could you like, just give a brief background on why that distinction is important and and sort of the, the boundaries of the first amendment in terms of speech versus conduct?
2: Yeah. So, you know, not a clear line, not clarified at all in this case, but basically the bread and butter of what our government does is help regulate our conduct. You can't murder, but well, I, my message is that I hate this person, right? Well, you, You still can't murder them. So there are a couple of cases that really flesh out maybe what that line is. So one of them is called O'Brien. It is a draft card burning case. So somebody who was against the Vietnam War wanted to burn his draft card. Well, you have to have your draft card on you. There is a draft. And for the functioning of government, we need eligible men to have this card on them so what what wins your freedom of speech to say i hate the war so much that i want to burn my my draft card or the government's regulation of conduct in order to have a draft in order to have a military we need people to do certain things um, and in that case they they said that the regulation that you need to have an intact draft card on you is conduct and so therefore you could prohibit the burning of it and the line basically is you know is the regulation of conduct does it have an incidental burden on speech it's it's you know it's clearly directed at conduct it's mostly conduct yes it does affect speech but that that has nothing to do with the point of the regulation it, it just happens to affect that so any sort so, of no go ahead so flag burning is the same thing if you're if you're not allowed to like set things on fire generally like in a public place that will affect your ability to
0: burn a flag, but it has to do with safety. This is well, safety I was going to actually bring up the flag burning case, too, because both of those cases burning a draft card and, and burning a flag, um, the court held, you know, exactly as you said that that um, that that was conduct. I actually disagree with that i'm you know i maybe i'm more of a first amendment absolutist um i i fall into the justice scalia camp on flag burning which is that it's it's inherently expressive um and yes there are laws against lighting things on fire in public and you can be prosecuted for that um, because you're jeopardizing the safety of the people around you and we don't typically allow people to light things on fire on courthouse steps whatever they are um, but to prohibit flag burning per se or draft card burning per se is in my view the squelching of of a message so i don't i actually don't think those cases were rightly decided but be i mean be that as it may i think you know a, a, a clearer line in terms of um, when does speech become conduct? Has to do with harassment, right? So you can say something negative about a person—that's um, your opinion, mm-hmm. and that's you have a right to say that. But if you are constantly um, sending them aggressive messages, threatening to beat them up, you know, saying you hate them, uh, following them from place to place, and verbally. You know, abusing them, that becomes harassment, right? So even though it's words that are coming out of your mouth, um, they are, it's not protected free speech because you've ventured into the realm of harassment.
2: Yeah. And then there's one other kind of famous case that I think is a little bit confusing, actually, which is military recruiters on campus. So there was a time where universities were very anti-military, and yet the law says you have to allow recruiters on campus. So do these universities have a free speech right not to comply with the law, to not allow military recruiters on campus? And the Supreme Court said, no, you have to allow the military recruiters on campus, basically under the theory that you allowing them is not really a burden on your speech. You can still say, "I hate the military." And it's not allowing these recruiters on campus is not going to somehow be interpreted as you promote the war. You're a very pro-war university. Um, and yeah, so the, this the speech conduct line is just a smattering of random cases and thoughts and ideas, and not necessarily anything. I think that uh, is easy to identify or articulate.
0: Yeah. I mean, I do think if you apply all of those cases to a fact pattern, that's more similar to the fact pattern, both of the fact patterns that issue in uh, 303 creative and masterpiece cake shop. Right. You said, let's say you have a bakery, um, or a website designer and somebody comes to them and asks them to create something, a cake or, or a website. um, And the proprietor gives them a cake or a website that says something hateful and discriminatory and not in fact what they asked for. Right. That, right. If they, if, if, if Jack Phillips hands the person a cake that says, you know, you're going to burn in hell for marrying a same sex person. That would be not necessarily a message, but actually harassing conduct. So, but that is not at all what happened here. These are simply people who don't want to have to say something that they don't agree with. And as the court pointed out, um, you know, let's say it were reversed, let's say there was a, a gay man married to another man, they're web designers, um, and somebody comes to them and asks them to design a website that, um, you know, favors a proposition, a state ballot question to repeal gay marriage. Do they have to create that website? Um, No, they don't. So it goes both ways, right? First Amendment protects speech on both sides of an issue.
2: Yeah. And maybe this, this like very confusing speech conduct distinction is in part not easy to understand because as the First Amendment was drafted, it was clearly intended as a prohibition on Congress from making a law. And now that it has been applied um, to the states, also there's just such an enormous amount of questions that really were never meant to be answered. Um, And these non-discrimination laws, obviously not around um, at the time of the founding. So there is a lot of just um, confusion here that can't be answered by, well, what was the First Amendment meant to tackle? Because it was a prohibition on Congress. Yeah,
1: I, I want to let's 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 move this uh, conversation. Just add one more element to this. So um, speech conduct distinction, very, very complicated, as, as May uh, has been laying out uh, and not necessarily clear. Um, that being said, in this case, extremely clear because Colorado agrees. This is speech. Lori Smith agrees that this is speech and the 10th Circuit all agree. This is speech. This is speech. This is speech. Um, so in this case, I just I do think it's relevant the background because obviously there's a whole category of these cases and they're going to keep popping up and some of them you're not going to have that stipulation and you're going to have to flesh out that line between speech and conduct. But there's another line I want to introduce the conversation here and and that is um, something that that the Tenth Circuit and um, that that the dissent do address, which is the commercial speech line, the line about whether or not you're getting paid for. A product that is also speech so jennifer maybe maybe you start like yeah, why sure. is that is that relevant why would it be relevant or why do people argue that it is relevant um, and what kind of conclusions can we draw about the boundaries of free speech in a commercial context
0: right so if you're selling something and you're selling it um generally to everybody and it's it's um, not made specially for the person who orders it, you have to sell it under these public accommodation laws to anybody who wishes to buy it. So actually, you know, the the an example would be, let's say um, Jack Phillips baked, did custom cakes, but also had um, a number of cakes for sale off the shelf, including some cakes that were white three-tiered cakes that could, easily be used in a wedding and a gay couple came in and said you know we would like to buy that cake right there the one in the corner with three tiers and it's white um jack phillips would have to sell them that cake um because again as a commercial enterprise you have to make goods and services equally available to all but the question becomes um whether the, the product that's being sold is creative and customizable. So when the cu- if a couple comes in and says, we'd like you to design us a special wedding cake and we'd like two grooms at the top and um, yada, 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 then the person could say, you know what? I'm not going to make that cake, especially for you, because I don't agree with the message. Now, what the dissent in this case said, the dissent written, by Justice Sotomayor is well, if you're saying I don't want to make a cake for you, then you're not really objecting to the message, you're objecting to the person. That was her argument. You're objecting to the person. Um, to which in this case, you know, the the parties had already stipulated, like we said, that she would be more than willing to create websites for gay people, gay couples. Um, she just didn't want to make websites that had a certain message. And I think the website case is is easier than the cake case because um, there is no off the shelf website, despite Justice Sotomayor in her dissent claiming that or maybe I'm sorry, maybe I'm confusing. It It might have been an oral argument somebody suggested Um But at some point, an argument was made that, you know, once she makes a wedding website for a heterosexual couple, she can just cut and paste that website um, for the same sex couple. And so, you know, there you have it. She just has to sell the template to them. Well, that's not what this is. It's not a template. Anybody who's ever been on a wedding website knows that. It has photos of the couple, it tells their story, how they met, isn't this lovely um, that, you know, these two individuals are uniting and going to start a family. And it's it's personal, it's creative, it's custom, and it's not just a template. So in many ways, the website case is a much easier case than the bakery case, which was, as I said before, wasn't actually decided um, on the merits of the free speech claim.
2: So, and then, Inez, I want to answer one, like, one more point on the commercial speech case, or the question, because it's so random, actually. It's not like, wasn't meant to be a, a case about commercial speech or not. Um, but when I was in law school, we barely learned the First Amendment, and the professor had this analogy that uh, First Amendment law was like an onion. And at the very core, the most protected thing was political speech. And then like, as you got out further and further, there were less protections. So you would say that commercial speech was somewhere around that outside layer of the onion because it's less protected. For example, the FDA can make drug companies put all these I mean, as you're watching the pharmaceutical ads online, this drug might kill you and this drug you can't get they on. They
0: diarrhea. They all cause violent <laughs> diarrhea. All cause diarrhea.
2: So, but they can make you say all these bad things about your product, um, which you would never choose to do because there is an understanding that the government can regulate, the FDA directly can regulate speech in the commercial context for a good enough reason, not for like the best reason, but like for a good enough reason. And so, Maybe since, you know, Lori Smith is doing commercial, if we've got like a good enough reason, we can sort of regulate her speech. And I think that that idea is sort of what uh, Justice Sotomayor is trying to say. But the problem really is, is that when you're selling a product, sure, we can consider that commercial. But when you are expressing yourself, that is hard to put into a commercial bucket versus a not. And so if you are a photographer and your thing is you want to do pictures of the family at home, you love, like that's the message that you want to portray. And someone says, I want you to take a picture of like me in the workplace. Like, okay, I'm not, I'm not, I just, that's not what I do. That's not my expressive conduct. And so yes, it's commercial, but I don't, I just, I don't see that same commercial distinction in a place where what you're selling is your ideas yourself, and not like a drug.
1: Um, there's there's also so uh, in one of the most remarkable things about the original decision here um, coming out of Colorado to me was that it, it tried to sort of put Laurie Smith on the continuum of um, of monopoly, right? They, they were basically saying that that because Her product is so expressive, and it was almost using it uh, in the opposite way that that same fact in the opposite way that you just did, May, right? Where they were saying, Well, yes, this is so expressive, this is so individual that actually it constitutes a monopoly in a certain sense. Um, And therefore, like we can think about this as something closer to a common carrier or closer to, um, you know, Heart of Atlanta motel like type situation, right? They don't cite Heart of Atlanta as far as I remember, but. Um, it, it's clear that that's what they're driving at. They're like, oh, th- this service, it doesn't matter that this couple alleged, this imaginary couple in this case, right? Um, this gay couple can go to any number of website designers because those website designers will not be Laurie Smith and they will not produce the same thing. And therefore um, th- this couple is in practice being discriminated against and, and we can break into, uh, you know, we can overcome high scrutiny and, and all of these things because this couple is like, uh, subject to the monopoly of Lori Smith, right?
0: But they, um, really, they really created a legal catch 22 because on the one hand, they said um, it has to be, you, you know, unique and customizable um, and can't just be something off the rack or off the shelf. But then if it's too customizable and unique um, or if it is customizable and unique, well, then it's a monopoly because he, you know, he, he can get another cake or he can get another website, but it won't be a Laurie Smith website or a Jack Phillips cake. And therefore, you know, he's shut out. You know, the customer is shut out of the marketplace. Um, so, you know, it, under that analysis, the proprietor can never win. The artist can never win, right? Because it has to be unique enough to be. Customize. It. I mean, it just—it makes no sense. Actually, You're kind of
1: damned if you do, damned if you don't, right? Like, if you are producing something that's clearly unique and expressive and artistic, right? Um, by nature, it's going to be unique, and then therefore, the Tenth Circuit is going to jam you into this this category of of basically holding a monopoly over your artistic services. And I think, uh, Justice Gorsuch does a really good job here of of pointing out that everything that we typically think of as expressive art actually also falls into this commercial category, right? Many great works of art were commissioned for money, right? We um, t- talk about like newspapers, right? Which we think of as the heart in May's onion, May's uh, con law professor's onion, right? Um, we think of political speech and newspapers as the heart of the first amendment, right? Um, but newspapers operate for money. Is that, you know, like, does that somehow limit um, so what, news, what news,
0: newspapers operate for money and they're for profit and all. And so they are they're commercial speech. They're also political speech because they express opinions. Right. But but take, for example, so if a newspaper prints wedding announcements and they print all anyone who sends in a wedding announcement, they print it exactly as the person wrote it with no editorial discretion. If a gay couple comes to the newspaper and says, uh, I would like to print my wedding announcement, I would think that the newspaper would have to print it, that not printing it would be considered discriminatory as opposed to the New York Times that does a wedding page, which they select um, who they're gonna profile they, you know, they write the story in their own way, right? So it's a question of whose. there was a question raised in court in the oral argument of whose speech is this, right? So when you create a website for a couple, is it Lori Smith's speech or is it the couple's speech? Like they're giving you the photos, they're telling you their story, whose, whose speech is it? Um, unlike my newspaper example, Lori Smith isn't just taking exactly what the couple wrote and putting it on a template. That would be a different case. Um, but a newspaper that is just taking, okay, here's your 600 words describing your wedding, that that could have come out differently. Um, I think this is
1: probably a good uh, introduction to another case that got that pulled into all of this argument here, which is um, I'm, the name is dropping out of, of my head, but about the Boston parade, right, where you have really? um, a, a private parade organizer, but it's permitted by the city, right, to have a parade through the middle of Boston. Um, and they have floats with all kinds of groups, right, are joining this parade. And then the parade organizers say to a, um, I believe it was a bisexual group, but um, to, to this this other group, uh, they said, no, well, we don't. we don't want you to be marching in our parade. This is our expressive, like, we want the parade to have a certain message, and you're not part of it. Um, the Supreme Court upheld their right to do that.
0: Yeah, the Supreme Court did uphold the right of, um, I guess, the Irish American whatever association it yeah, was. I can't remember what the... what's <laughs> on the parade in Southie every year in Boston. They were, at the time, excluding... Um, gay lesbian bisexual group from participating they no longer do by the way um and the court said that's okay because because you're putting on a parade and you're inviting people to march in it whoever you want to march in it police you know first responders politicians whoever you want to march in this parade it's your message the parade organizers can um Put forward their own message about who they want to associate with who they endorse um, and who they don't endorse so um, that you know that that case was pretty clear um and it, you know of course it was a, a guiding precedent in this case
2: yeah and the same thing with the boy scouts case mm-hmm. um just the scouts now um where right. the Boy Scouts at the time did not uh, permit their leaders to be gay, you know, presumably openly gay, um, and the Supreme Court said that's fine. That, as the Boy Scouts, is your message. Um, so there's, you know, there's reams of this precedent where you have public accommodation law, Massachusetts, you know, having definitely. Public accommodation non-discrimination laws, and yet, when the burden is on a person or group's speech expression, then uh, the fir- the First Amendment obviously wins in that battle.
1: Um, before before we start wrapping wrapping this up, uh, I have two more questions. One, we hear a lot about the compelled speech argument uh, in the context of pronouns and there was a big brouhaha in california um and then michigan but i actually i i, I was reading the text of that law and in, in michigan i think and it was it actually just carves out protected speech so it's like one of those laws that um where the left gets everything it wants to virtue signal but then like they just try to avoid the challenge by making it essentially a nullity <laughs> you know um But we hear this all the time in the context of of schools, preferred pronouns like demanding in the workplace context or or elsewhere that people use chosen pronouns for people who identify as the opposite sex or as no sex or whatever. Right. Um, So to what extent uh, is compelled speech or protections against compelled speech relevant in those kinds of contexts where you have states that are interested, uh, at least seem to be chomping at the bit to pass anti-discrimination laws that include uh, making misgendering someone correctly gendering them um, a, a crime
0: well the court's been very clear that students have First Amendment rights um, to express viewpoints uh, that that differ from the, the orthodoxy of what's being taught at school um, and you know they have when, when the when what they are expressing is something of political import um They have a First Amendment right to express it, even if it's offensive to some of their classmates. Um, What students are not allowed to do is, and again, this gets into the speech conduct distinction, is they're not allowed to be disruptive. So um, if you're deliberately taunting a a classmate using um, pronouns that the classmate doesn't want to be called, the school can discipline the person for you know harassment bullying disrupting the classroom any number of things but if the student um you know if student you know if john comes in one day and says i want to be called mary and my pronouns are now she and hers and um another student you know let's call her Anne, is talking about john and says uh, who's now Mary and and refers to that person as as he or whatever gets it wrong is confused, um, just doesn't want to use the new pronouns in reference to the person. The school cannot punish the student for doing that, despite there have been a number of schools that said, well, we we have to punish mispronouncing or dead naming because Title Nine compels it. That is a lie. That is not true. Title IX compels no such thing. It it forbids schools from discriminating on the basis of sex. It does not require schools to punish students um, for using, you know, incorrect or or un, unwanted pronouns. So um, this is something that schools and universities are trying to do. I think they will run up into big First Amendment problems. There's already been at least one appellate case. Um, I forget which circuit it was, but it was a professor who um, was being punished by a state university for um, not using the pronouns that the student wanted him to use. The professor offered to not use any pronouns at all, to um, try to kind of find other ways around it, just call the person by, um, their name, but what he wasn't going to do is use a pronoun that, that he thought was false or didn't apply to this person. Um, and the, you know, the appellate court said that that the professor had a first amendment claim that the state school had, um, attempted to compel speech and that, 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 that didn't fly. So, um, I think schools that try to do this are, are, are asking for litigation that they will lose.
2: Yeah. And that was an Ohio professor and they ended up settling the case. The professor got $400,000. And, you know, unfortunately with the Biden administration, these schools are going to have to make a call because I expect, Mm -hmm. um, as I think you do too, that the Biden administration is going to finalize its rule saying title IX somehow, despite its text, protects against gender identity discrimination, and though that, may ha- that is without meaning, that phrase, um, it will be interpreted through guidance and other things to require schools use, uh, the, the you know, play the pronoun game, And so um, once you have the federal government misinterpreting the statute and trying applying it to schools, and then the actual First Amendment real rights that have been vindicated um, in courts already clashing, I mean, these schools are in a little bit of a lose-lose situation.
0: But I will say, I mean, if if there's a lesson to be learned from 303 Creative and the whole line of First Amendment cases that we've been talking about it's that the constitution trumps any statute. So, um, you know, you, the three of us would argue till we were blue in the face with the Biden administration that their interpretation of Title IX is wrong. And I think we're correct about that. But let's just say there was a federal statute that did exactly what they claim Title IX does. um, And that is to prohibit discrimination and you know, verbal harassment on the basis of gender identity or certain speech on the basis of gender identity. A statute can do that, but it will violate the First Amendment. If you are telling, I mean, not the discrimination part, but if you have a statute that tells students that they have to use certain pronouns or that compels speech um, on a matter, a question of political interest and import. That statute is going to fall because the constitution takes precedence over all statutes, have to comply with the constitution. You can't just legislate whatever you want, um, and you know, the statute says it, so there it is. I mean, that's really the core lesson of 303 Creative it's that these public accommodation laws, um, are important, but they cannot be applied in a way that violates free speech rights.
1: Um, just briefly, before we wrap up, you know, we have now this entire term and a number of blockbuster cases on affirmative action and also, you know, others. Um, we we have essentially a dynamic where there's anywhere from five to six, depending on the day, right? Um, conservative justices, and when I mean conservative, I mean that they are primarily originalists. They're looking at these cases from an originalist lens, and then we've seen these sort of disjointed, I think this case is particularly that way, Um, but we've seen these like disjointed um, dissent opinions from the liberal wing of the court that really don't play under the same canon of construction and and seem like they're not really connecting up, right, with the majority opinion. And I was wondering what you guys think uh, the future of that court dynamic is, um, just personally, it's very amusing to me to watch the left because, you know, as, as May was alluding to um, when she was talking about her law school days, right, um, until recently, it's been really easy to go through a top law school, go, you know, clerk and then work at a top firm and, and you know, argue cases in front of the Supreme Court and never really verse yourself in originalism, right? That was considered kind of this, this oh, that's like not legitimate, um, even, you know, even, Thirty years ago, right in in law schools, this this canon of construction of originalism was kind of treated as a bastard child, as an illegitimate canon of construction. Well, um, how do you think the legal world and the left wing of the court is going to react to it becoming the dominant? I mean, just by a matter of numbers now. You know, if you're going to argue in front of the Supreme Court, you better be prepared to answer questions from a originalist perspective. How do you think that's going to change? Um, that's going to change the court? And how do you think that the leftist of the legal world is going to react to that?
2: So I know at least one law shop that's just closed up. They're like, all we know how to do is be crazy. And that (laughs) is not, that's not a sellable good anymore. It's the one, when I was in law school, they did a law clinic, Supreme Court law clinic where they put us in a very liberal law firm um, and we did Supreme Court cases. So I think that there will be people who refuse to learn new skills, right? They refuse to learn um, how to how to use the tools of originalism to win their cases. But then I think that there are going to be um, very liberal law firms that do learn the skill and do it very well. So uh, for people who listen to the million hours of oral argument in Moore versus Harper, which was... Um, a case about the independent state legislature theory. The side that won uh, was the side uh, that was represented by a very liberal lawyer, Neil Katyal. But his entire argument was presented in a very, he, he could speak conservative, he could speak originalism. He uh, could talk about the original intent of the elections clause and he won his case for his clients. So what these law schools need to be doing is teaching people, how do you be Neil Katyal? How do you, you know, represent left clients and win your cases in front of a you know conservative, originalist Supreme Court? But instead, the law firms or the law schools are pulling Stanford's and are saying like, we just need a protest conservative. So it doesn't seem like there's a willingness to go out and win your case. In that sense.
1: Jennifer, you have anything to add before we wrap up about 303 Creative, about the state of the legal world?
0: I mean, I, I agree with what May said. I also think, um, you know, there's sort of a different take, take. There's I want to tease out something that was in your question where you said it sounds like the dissent and the majority are speaking past each other and not sort of playing by the same rules. Um, I think one aspect of that is what you're seeing here is when the more liberal or progressive justices are in dissent, they're almost ignoring the parameters of the debate. And what they're doing is writing a press release. So they know they've lost on the merits. um, They know they've lost the legal argument. And so instead of, putting forward in their dissent their strongest legal argument for future attorneys, um, law students, you know, down the road, which is what lawyers used to do and judges used to do, right. You'd write a dissent so that maybe someday the law would develop in a way that the dissent became the majority, right. That our precedent was overturned. Um, now the dissents are written for CNN and they're written for, um, you know, MSNBC, and they're written for Twitter, and they just want to get, you know, a one-liner in there and a zinger. And so it doesn't matter if they rebut all of the, you know, carefully crafted originalist arguments that are articulated by the majority, because really, who on Twitter wants to read that anyway? Nobody does, right? So... That's where I think you see Sotomayor and Gorsuch in this case completely speaking past each other, where he's saying, well, these facts were stipulated. And so based on the stipulations, here's the result. And she's just saying, forget about the stipulations. You know what? You're letting religious people discriminate against gay people.
1: Yeah, it's a. Uh, she also has a lot to say about the feelings of people and and the harm being the feelings of people who are turned away, rather than like trying to articulate what she actually means by public accommodations. Um, it really does. I mean, I think you're right. It really does read more like an op-ed um, than yeah. an actual legal dissent. Not a majority opinion, like the frustration. It almost looks. I don't. I don't know. Nobody knows how this was constructed except the clerks and, and the court, but. Um, it almost feels like because that's the last part of the majority opinion. Like Gorsuch went back and and just kind of did a, a big WTF. Like what you know, like why Wait, is your dissent ignored? What are you
0: talking about, Sonia? Were we at the same
1: yeah. argument? Yeah, right.
0: The quote, "It is
2: difficult to read the dissent and conclude we are looking at the same case," is just like maximum Gorsuch frustration.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, uh, on maximum Gorsuch frustration on that phrase, I think it's time to say goodbye uh, at this episode of of At the Bar.
0: At the Bar is a production of Independent Women's Forum. It's available for viewing on Facebook, YouTube and IWF.org. And you could listen to it as a podcast on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio and anywhere you get your podcasts. We hope you'll
1: join us next time for another spirited conversation about issues at the intersection of law, politics, and culture. And until then, cheers.